Good afternoon and welcome to the Middle East Forum's webinar series. My name is Winfield Myers. I'm the director of Campus Watch and I'll be our host today. Our guest today is William Jacobson. Uh, professor Jacobson is clinical professor of law at Cornell Law School, the founder of the Legal Insurrection website and president of the Legal Insurrection Foundation. He earned his BA from Hamilton College and a JD from Harvard Law School. Professor Jacobson, welcome, welcome to the Middle East Forums webinar. We're very happy to have you today. Thank you for having me. Our topic today, uh, as most of you know, is the Middle East Studies Association's impending vote by its full membership on whether or not to make the Boycott, Divestment and Sanction, or BDS of Israel, its official policy. Uh, its uh, uh, members attending its annual conference back last month voted 93% uh, of the 444 who were there to uh, pass this along to the full membership to be voted on. And Professor Jacobson is going to discuss today, uh, among other things, the possible uh, ramifications of this uh, passage, if it does pass. The vote uh, seems to be scheduled for sometime this month, so we could only be a week or two away from this vote. And when it occurs, uh, certainly the Middle East Forum, and I'm sure Legal Insurrection will, uh, will broadcast it and, uh, and comment on it, uh, however it goes. Um, Professor Jacobson, you had noted uh, earlier in some of your writings that um, if this passes from the full membership that uh, to carry out a boycott against uh, Israeli academics, they may run afoul, in your words, of anti-discrimination and academic freedom protections. Um, what are the implications of this? How do you see this falling out should they vote yes, which would not surprise many people, I don't believe. Right, well, uh, I'm not gonna go into too much background because I know our time is limited, but the uh, Middle East Studies Association has passed a resolution. And as is often the case, they got their people out to the business meeting. So that is not necessarily a representative sample of the entire membership. So there were 400 some odd people at the business meeting. There are 2,700 voting members. And there have been instances in the past where a resolution makes its way out of the business meeting at a, a faculty or an association and does not pass the membership. So it's not a given that it will pass, but it probably will because unlike a lot of the other organizations like American Historical Association, uh, uh, Modern Language Association, there does not seem to be an internal opposition at Mesa because everybody who would be has long left the organization because it's so skewed anti-Israel. So this is gonna come up for a vote. And I think uh, Mesa is very much aware that it could run into problems because they have worded the resolution very curiously, okay? Uh, the way they've worded it is that, um, be it resolved, and I'm doing this from memory, but I think accurately, that the majority of the membership of Mesa endorses the uh, boycott call. And the second operative is that the uh, directors of Mesa are uh, directed to implement it consistent with um, local and federal and state laws and academic freedom. So they know there's gonna be a storm coming uh, if this passes, just like there was a storm several years ago, it was December 2013, the American Studies Association passed the boycott resolution. And that was a little stronger language than Macy used. And there was a firestorm of controversy. And there has not been a major 
academic groups since December of 2013 that has passed it. There have been some smaller ones, but none of the major ones. So this would be, a, I consider a major one. And 250 university presidents signed statements opposing the ASA boycott. Um, and uh, it really, they faced lawsuits and a lot of backlash. How might it play out here? Well, the first thing is that most university campuses, I'll dare say every single one, um, has anti-discrimination policies, which are sometimes much broader than federal and state law. They are expansively broad. And I think you can make a very good argument that if the boycott is carried out on campus, and I emphasize that, is carried out. I don't mean somebody having an opinion on it. I don't mean somebody saying, I support it. But if it's actually implemented by Mesa through its members on a campus, it arguably is discrimination on the base, basis of national origin. And it arguably is discrimination on the basis of religion, because uh, let's face it, this is the one majority Jewish state in the world, okay? Um, and, and so those uh, campus provisions could come into play. I think they would come into play. Whether you know, federal and state protections come into play, it would have to be very fact specific. Um, if you were able to prove that you know, an Israeli was singled out for being an Israeli, or if you were able to prove that a Jewish student who wanted to study in Israel was singled out because of that. And I think there have been instances and in the sort of things where that could come up is for example, a professor is willing to write a recommendation uh, for a student to attend the University of Amman, uh, but not the University of Tel Aviv, okay? Uh, and uh, that would be implementing a boycott. That would be not only potentially violating the school's anti-discrimination laws, but academic freedom protections that apply to students and faculty. So faculty where sometimes the line becomes blurry, but the distinction I always draw is you're entitled to believe whatever you want to believe. And frankly, you're entitled to say just about anything you want to say. But when you are on a campus, you have to abide by the campus's rules and regulations. And that's particularly important if you have an administrative role. And if the school has a policy against the boycott of Israel, then uh, you have to abide by that. Either that or get another job, okay? It, you have to abide by your employer's rules. Um, and, and so that I think is really important to keep in mind. It's the implementation of it that becomes important. And we do know that, that these things are actually implemented. Uh, and so the distinction between speech and conduct becomes extremely, extremely important. The other thing I would say is as probably most people on this call understand that uh, you always hear BDS say BDS is supporters at least the ones who are honest say, this is just a tactic. BDS is a tactic. Uh, and they're right. It is a, ta and it took me a while to understand that. They don't actually care if you study at Tel Aviv University. Mm. They don't actually care if the dining hall serves Sabra Hummus. Some of their useful fools who support them may care, but the people behind it actually don't care. They use this as an opportunity to propagandize the campus against Israel. And if they can get a campus to spend two months or three months in a student council debating how bad Israel is, is it just bad or is it bad enough to boycott? And they lose the vote, they, they actually don't care. For them, it is a generational project. It is not a project to pass a resolution, a meaningless resolution in a student government. 
Um, it is, is a generational project. And I think the people opposing this and opportunities like Mesa provide an opportunity to get campuses to affirm their support for academic involvement with Israel. We've already obtained, we haven't gone public with it yet, we will, uh, several statements from university presidents rejecting the boycott, not promising to do anything about it, but rejecting the boycott and uh, affirming their intention to interact with Israel. So I think use the op they use this as a tactic. You can also, regardless of whether it violates a particular rule, um, use this as a chance to educate people. Because again, people on this call understand it. this is just a new variation on the anti-Jewish boycott that started in the British mandate for Palestine in the 1920s. Some people would say even earlier, uh, but you can see a clear continuation that this is just the repackaged anti-Jewish boycott to speak to a social justice, younger sort of Western mm -hmm. audience. Um, and, and so I don't know that the answer to this ultimately is the law or anything like that, but there are legal protections that people are entitled to enforce. And I think Mesa, 100% reading their resolution, they see this coming and they're gonna say, oh, this is just a resolution expressing an opinion, not sure. actually promising to do anything. There, I would note that there, um, uh, this kind of activism and, and anti-Israel activism on the part of Mesa flows directly from the scholarship of its members over many, many decades now. Um, and, and one of the core elements of that scholarship regarding Israel is the delegitimization of Israel as a Jewish state. So this is just, um, you know, politics by more political means, if you will, not, not the scholar, but it, it flows directly from what they have been uh, teaching and writing for uh, 30 years now and, and more. It's, so it's not a surprise to those of us who follow this organization. A, a few years ago when it was brought up, this kind of, there was, a, there was actually a, you know, a debate, and I think in 2014 uh, at their annual meeting, and um, <clears throat> a few people got up and spoke against this. It's kind of surprising who it was. Juan Cole of the University of Michigan, uh, Nathan Brown of George Washington, a few others, uh, you wouldn't necessarily expect this from because they're such virulent critics of Israel, but they spoke up against that uh, at, at that point. If they have spoken up against it now, I, I haven't heard anything about it. I don't know whether they've just changed their minds or whether they're just uh, so outgunned at this point they figure it's not worth the fight. Yeah, I don't know. You know, I, I'm not a Mesa member. I wasn't in at the business meeting. I've only heard reports of it. Mm -hmm. And apparently it was an extremely one-sided presentation. Mm -hmm. There were no real opposition voices. Yeah. So, and, th and that's the, where the organization has gone. Yeah, no, it is, it is indeed. Well, you mentioned um, in some of your writing, uh, the possible violation of Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, uh, violating the, the civil rights of, of students, of professors. Yeah. Um, what are the consequences of that? I, I know can be, uh, a threat to curtail federal funds to institutions that violate it. Um, that's a draconian move. It's hard to get anybody to do that in Washington for, for obvious political reasons. Um, but is that a possible reaction to this? Should, uh, let's say, um, Israeli scholars be banned, not banned in a, in a physical sense perhaps, but not recognized by or not invited to a particular campus or um, should, as you said, students be denied the opportunity to study abroad in Israel? Um, I know at the University of Michigan, there was a lecturer a few years ago who infamously refused to write a letter of recommendation uh, for a student wanting to study in Israel. And, and of course, it, it exploded in his face, as it yeah. should have. Um, 
Do you see that as a possible consequence? It's unlikely to happen, as you indicated, <laughs> but uh, and it's particularly unlikely to happen with the current administration. But maybe if there's another administration in the future, uh, I think the you know civil rights division of the Department of Education, uh, maybe even the Justice Department, I don't know who has jurisdiction over something like that, could certainly open an investigation. And I think that uh, that sort of systemic discrimination should at least be looked into. And if nothing else, that may elicit a more positive response in addressing it from the administrations, because I mean, that is the nuclear bomb for modern university systems, because there probably isn't a one. I mean, there might be one, Hillsdale College, but there aren't many (laughs) that don't receive federal money. That's right, that's right. And you've noted too, um, the institutional memberships of of MISA that include, I'm just looking at a list of Columbia, Cornell, your own university, Dartmouth, Duke, UNC, Florida State, George Washington, Georgetown, uh, Harvard, uh, on and on, on, Indiana U, uh, big schools, NYU, all up and down the list are institutional members of MISA. And of course, many other professors are institutional members. You had noted that one consequence could be, and that maybe this would be easier to pull off, I don't know, uh, the, re- the refusal or the denial of the payment of uh, fees or funds to join it either institutionally or individually should this pass. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to understand how a university, which is a policy of interaction with Israel and a policy of protecting academic freedom, not just of Israelis. Remember, uh, this has to be framed the way it needs to be framed. This is academic freedom for Americans, not just sure. Israelis. Okay, yeah. If a student is deprived, if researchers are deprived, um, this is actually a threat also to our health. I mean, think of how many medical innovations have come out of Israeli institutes um, and that cooperation. So I think that, you know, that has to be something that's taken into account that this is, they need to protect uh, the academic freedom of Americans on their campus, not just of Israelis. Sure, of course. Yeah, they're, they're, they're um, in the name of academic freedom, uh, in their words, uh, denying academic freedom. They're, they're saying that they're doing it for the academic freedom of uh, Palestinian scholars, Palestinian students uh, at various universities in the West Bank and elsewhere. And, um, and for, I believe the language includes, and for their Israeli counterparts who are persecuted by the Israeli government. So for your own good, we're going to prevent you from um, uh, having the academic freedom that you had before. I mean, that is the unique feature of academic BDS. It may be the only movement which claims the academic freedom to deprive others of academic freedom. I mean, that is the whole point. Depriving others of academic freedom is the entire point of academic BDS. I mean, there's a bigger point of delegitimizing Israel, but that is their methodology. And so it's a very curious thing because the first thing they scream, if anything is done to protect Americans' academic freedom or Israelis, is they scream, you know, well, you're infringing our academic freedom. And of course, you'll get faculty members around the country to form groups and sign petitions and how bad this is. But they want the academic freedom to deprive others of academic freedom. And I don't know of any other instance where that's the case. Mm-hmm. And done unironically, uh, I would know. Um, we've noted that Governor DeSantis down in Florida has, because uh, Florida State University is one of the institutional members, has spoken out against this. You, you mentioned uh, university presidents. Um, 
do you see the possibility of um, voters, citizens of other states, particularly for state public universities that are institutional members of, of MISA, to speak up against this, to petition uh, yeah. legislative, uh, the, the legislature, the governors and others to um, speak out and, and maybe take action against this uh, should their institutional public universities in their states um, adopt this? Well, you know, I think that uh, people tend to forget that the only voice, that voices on campus include alumni, parents, mm -hmm. and the general community. They have a legitimate say. And for the American Studies Association boycott, uh, people started reaching out to university presidents. So uh, actually they did it through my website. Uh, and maybe we'll post that information again because we've emailed for comment so we can report on it every university president who has an institutional membership. And we've only heard back from a handful of them. Uh, and uh, some are no comment and others are we stand by the prior statement. We oppose the boycott of Israel. Uh, we have not heard back from Florida State University, surprisingly. Uh, we have not heard back from the Florida Board of Governors, which governs their universities. But these are all things that people are entitled to get their voices heard. You know, there are petitions practically every week against Israel circulated. Uh, I don't know that we need a petition here, but I think at some point, you know, we may publish the contact, the public contact information for university officials, particularly those who refuse to respond to us, because I think the community is entitled to know, and a prospective student is entitled to know whether that student's going to be deprived of academic opportunities because Mesa is operating on the campus. That's right. No, that's right. And um, I would suggest maybe a lot of organizations to do that, particularly at the state level. Uh, donors, uh, you know, donors, I, I thought for many, for decades and decades, we all are alumni, so I've someplace. And, and um, you get these um, multi-million dollar PR campaigns aimed at us uh, every year, telling us how wonderful things are on campus, how, how nostalgic we were made to feel, especially the older we get. And um, so think back to your 20s when you were young, and this is exactly the way things are, and so give us $10,000 and, and things will be well. Um, so that's a, I've always thought that's a weak link to universities that's rarely exploited, particularly public universities, less so for uh, schools with multi-billion dollar endowments. But your average public school simply doesn't have that kind of money at hand. And they can be squeezed through grassroots pressure, through um, organized resistance, if you will, to this kind of, of um, manipulation of, as you say, students and their own professors, not just Israelis. Yeah, and I think it's always very important to make distinctions between um, the speech of people and uh, the academic freedom. So as long if I'm against, you know, trying to purge professors, I mean, God knows I've been tried to be purged many times. Uh, I'm against that. But uh, that doesn't mean that a professor can actively discriminate in the conduct of running a course. You know, they can go off to a Mesa meeting and say whatever they want to say. But once they're conducting a course and once they're uh, conducting school business with school funds, they have to abide by school policies. Sure, sure. Let me invite our audience to submit questions if you would like. We, we haven't gotten many yet, but one is uh, from Jay Lewis. Uh, he says, are there competing academic organizations to MISA and are they getting any traction? Uh, there is one competing organization and I'm 
forgive me for not remember. I, I, I can tell you, it's, uh, it's the Association me, for the Study of, of the Middle East and Africa. I remember the acronym. I yes, I do too. <laughs> it stood for, yes, ASMIA. Uh, don't ask me to repeat what it stands for. ASMIA, I think, is an alternative. It is. So more people will go there. But there is a, you know, once you've accumulated an institutional presence, it's hard for an upstart. Now, they're not exactly an upstart, but it's hard for a new organization to establish itself. And but that would be good. There was an attempt to create an alternative organization to the American Studies Association, but it's a lot of work. You need donors, you need a staff, you need a presence, and you need somebody who's committed to it for four to six years, maybe more, you know, to get it launched. And so it's a it's a big undertaking. And, and Misa has a, you know, has been there for a while. I forget when it was founded, but it's been decades. And you know it's going to be hard to displace them. That's just the reality. You can marginalize them, okay? Uh, there's no reason why an organization which endorses the boycott and has its directors have been instructed to carry it out um, should be able to use university funds, for example, or university facilities. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure. I, again, I'll repeat the name. It's the Association for the Study of the Middle East and Africa. Um, and uh, I think it's doing quite well. But as you say, uh, Misa builds itself as the umbrella organization for the field. It's been around since 1966, I believe. It's, it's difficult to, uh, to uh, replace a large, uh, once venerable scholarly organization, no matter how, uh, how far they have fallen. Um, same is true for other scholarly organizations, American Historical Association, American Political Science Association, and so on. Um, Starting these is, is a, an arduous task. If there are any uh, donors who want to do that, this is a worthy challenge, I would suggest. Um, Jerry Densis says, is BDS not blatantly anti-scholarly? Should this disqualify faculty as not scholarly? Uh, well, I think, uh, again, BDS is a very strange thing because it's the academic study of depriving others of academic freedom. Uh, mm -hmm. So I, I don't know. I, I don't think you can, with a broad brush, say it's not scholarly. Uh, I don't know what the repercussions of that would be, but it is a political movement. I mean, that's what it is. It's not a scholarly endeavor. It's a political movement, arguably a continuation of the anti-Jewish boycotts, but was birthed at the, uh, and there's a lot of misinformation out there, um, but it was actually birthed at the uh, 2001 Durban conference. Uh, and then they created this superficial window dressing that it was actually a 2005 call from Palestinian civil society. But that's actually mm -hmm. not true. The entire formulation of the boycott was a Durban formulation uh, in the declaration of the NGO forum at Durban. Uh, and it began to be carried out before 2005. So they were already boycotting Israel under a BDS style formula before the so-called uh, Palestinian call from civil society. And nobody ever seems to indicate who was that civil society. Well, it was all the same groups that supported the boycott to begin with. So uh, yeah, it's, it's not a scholarly endeavor, but I'm not sure you can declare the entire field as not worthy of being taught or spoken about on campus because of that. It's a political movement. Sure, sure. Julia Lutch writes, why does it seem so easy for groups hostile to, to Israel to get the funding and long-term backing they need. 
Yeah. I mean, you know, follow the money, follow the money. You know, there, there seems, they never seem to be at a loss for funds. Um, now, a lot of these academic organizations don't necessarily get outside infusions of cash. They get membership dues and those membership dues are almost always paid by universities. Most faculty, I can't say all, have certain expenses they are legitimately able to put through um, on the university or they might have a budget for that. You know, I know we do at Cornell, we've got a certain research fund and as long as it's an appropriate thing, you can use it for those purposes. So the university ends up paying it. So basically universities and not just the member universities, but universities are funding these groups, at least indirectly. They also have sponsors, they have publishing deals. You can go to the MISO website and look at who all their sponsors are and who they have agreements with. So. Mm -hmm. They don't necessarily receive a big check from a donor. They don't need to. They are pretty much self-funding. Sure, sure. Um, and um, Stuart Broad uh, notes, and I, I meant to mention this a moment ago, he's exactly right. There's another fine organization, uh, Scholars for Peace in the Middle East, uh, in addition to the Association for the Study of, of the Middle East and Africa, um, both somewhat alternatives, again, to uh, founded as alternatives to Mesa, given its long time uh, politicization. Uh, Eric asks, do you think CARE or other Palestinian or Muslim organizations are behind this, and how can we fight this? Well, behind it, I'm, I'm not sure uh, if that's the right term, but there definitely is a lot of crossover. So we've written a lot about um, connector groups. So American Muslims for Palestine is one of these connector groups that connects various anti-Israel groups. Where everybody gets their funding, I don't know, but you cannot view the BDS groups in isolation. They are not right. in isolation. They're part of a greater uh, ecosystem that seems to have a lot of money, um, and one of their targets is Israel, um, and this is just the way they do it. Sure, sure. I can tell you, too, that a lot of professors who are members and even past presidents of MISA like John Esposito, for example, at Georgetown has have spoken at CARE banquets um, more than once. The, the, the connection uh, may or may not be formal. I don't know about that. It probably is in time. So yes, there are some, and uh, I can name some names on that too, who do have formal connections. Funding is a different question, as you say. That's not exactly the same thing as being um, associated with CARE in some ways, but the associations and the, the friendliness is certainly there. A few years ago, MISA also had uh, a table uh, at their annual conference from the International Institute of Islamic Thought, which undoubtedly has Islamist ties uh, and funding, and uh, so thereby legitimizing, trying to legitimize them, failing ultimately, of course, uh, to do that too. Um, Stephen Orlo says, how does one organize a campaign against MISA, revisiting something we discussed earlier, MISA and anti-BDS efforts? Is there access to their membership list? The last, the final question I can say, no, I don't think there, there's an access to their membership list that I know of. Um, but I'm their sure. institutional members are right, listed right They're on online. their website. Yes. And you yes. certainly could reach out. And I always say people, please be polite, okay? Um, but you can reach out expressing concern um, that whether university funds are gonna be used to support this boycott effort. I mean, I think that's appropriate uh, and uh, those, uh, universities are, are listed there. They are directly paying dues um, to MISA and mm -hmm. they are probably in a, a perhaps a less direct way supporting it. 
And I think if that's what they want to do, they should announce it. Okay. Uh, they should take a position on it. And if their position is they support the boycott of Israel, we'll deal with that and they'll deal with that. But if their position is against it, then they've got to address why they're a member of an organization which has endorsed it and is not just endorsed it, but vowed, instructed their board of directors to carry it out. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure. Uh, Robert Larrick asks, how do these academics feel about the Hezbollah rejectionist terrorist takeover and, uh, and uh, the destruction of Lebanon, the old Paris of the Middle East now in ruins? I, I mean, just note quickly, I would say, a lot of the professors that we uh, follow uh, daily, um, one, of, one of the hallmarks of their scholarship, such as it is, and their teaching, is that many of them ignore the systemic problems in the Middle East, uh, whether it's terrorism or the mistreatment of women or the uh, expanding uh, Iranian hegemony throughout the region through Hezbollah and other organizations. Um, not a lot of attention paid to that, but uh, do you have a comment on that also? Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is something that I encounter often, uh, that people can't understand why they these people are the way they are, okay? Mm -hmm. And well, don't they want to be balanced? Don't they want to be, you know, take all? And the answer is no, they don't want to be balanced. That's not what this is about. This is a not a scholarly endeavor. This is not a, a seeking of the truth. I mean, this is just war against Israel by another means. And the, there are honest ones who will admit that. But most of the people who participate in the US and Western Europe are really, you know, I think the term the Soviets used to use is useful idiots. I mean, they, they believe the propaganda angle. They believe they're doing something for social justice. And they don't really care what Hezbollah is doing in Lebanon. They just want to rid the world of the Zionist entity. That's right. That's right. And, and I will say also, you know, yeah, we've please. talked a little about the Islamist connections. Let me tell you something. You go to any university, who's going to be front and center? It's far left-wing Jews, anti-Zionist Jews, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, they are the, the driving force behind this in, you know, uh, the university setting. Uh, and the second an issue is raised that this is discriminatory against Israelis or against, you know, Jews, who's going to, if you follow, as we've done for many years, the campus boycotts at student councils, who is always the first speaker in front, in favor of the resolution? Someone from the local chapter of Jewish Voice for Peace. Okay. They do that deliberately. They use those people as a shield uh, against correct accusations of anti-Semitism. So, you know, I don't, we don't focus really, I mean, I think the ties to Islamist organizations, that's all interesting, but on practical terms in the United States, the driving force are anti-Zionist left-wing Jews. Interesting, interesting. Uh, we're coming to the end of the, of the uh, webinar. Um, if people want to uh, learn more about you and about uh, your organization, uh, tell us where they can find you. Sure. Um, well, the main website is legalinsurrection.com. Legal Insurrection Foundation, which is a 501c3, is our operating entity, and it has its own website. Uh, and we have recently launched, recently as in early last year, a secondary website called criticalrace.org, where we track all that's going on on the campuses about critical race theory and its offshoots. Uh, or you can Google me, uh, and you'll find some very interesting stuff. <laughs> Indeed, and a lot of your writing, you're a prolific writer. So. Uh, well, thank you very much. We really appreciate this. This has been most informative. Um, I think our audience has benefited from it. I hope so. And um, 
I would ask the audience to please be on the lookout for future emails, including one this weekend announcing our future webinars. Uh, so again, we've been with Professor William Jacobson of Cornell and uh, Legal Insurrection. We again, thank you so much. This, is, this has been an excellent session. We appreciate it very much. Great. To our care. audience, thank you very much and um, have a wonderful weekend. Goodbye.